Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all this morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us so wonderfully again. I just was pondering that song as, as we were singing it this morning, and it, it was, it was um, striking to me that we're being exhorted in that song to make room, to prepare room for the Creator, right? Um, my kids, for some reason, find it hilarious to lock me out of our house. <laughs> they do. I will often come to the back door when I'm rushing around doing things, and, and it's locked. And I look up, and Paige is standing in the door laughing, <laughs> just laughing at me. And, and I don't think they, they don't lock you out, do they, Don? I, I, think, I think locking Dad out is particularly funny. Um, and I, I, I need to talk to them. We need to unpack this at lunch today. But um, I think some of why they find it so funny is because I bought the house. It, it's my house, right? I'm paying, we're paying the mortgage. I, we're, pay, we're keeping the lights on, right? I bought the door that she just locked. And that's funny. She finds that very funny. And, and it is, it's interesting. It's, it's funny when the owner of the house is somebody you lock out. And that's actually what that song is about. It, we do, we have this crazy idea that we can, or it's better if we lock out the creator of our hearts and prepare him room, allow him access to your heart. What? He made your heart. He owns your heart. He made everything. It all belongs to him. What a crazy thought. But the fact is, God in his grace works with us like that. He does. He provides means to know him, to commune with him, to have him actually take residence in our lives and hearts. And he's this God who's so relational. He gets down like a, a parent with a little child and he relates to us. And, and he's the all-powerful God who's the one who changes our hearts, gives us new hearts. But he works with us in a way where he exhorts us to say, make room for me in your heart. Isn't it fascinating as we think about Christmas around the corner, that there was no room for him in the end. The, the, the creator of the universe comes to his creation as one of his creation, and there's no room for him. Literally, physically, but that's symbolic, isn't it, of the reality of our hearts very often. Is there room for him in your heart? Or has your heart become so cluttered with all the other things, many of which are blessings he's given you, that, that there's no room for him there? There's no room for him in the core of your life. We're going to think this morning about the temple. I'll give you a chance to find Haggai starting now. Uh, it's just a little to the left of the beginning of the New Testament. If you can find Matthew, just keep going left in those little prophets. And we're, we're going to be in Haggai. But um, Haggai is, is a word from the Lord about making God your great joy, preparing room for him, uh, organizing your life in a way where he is paramount, he is central, he is your all-consuming passion and joy. That's what this little minor prophet is about. And that's what we're thinking of as we move toward Christmas with so much increased busyness and activity like Bethlehem was, and like Jerusalem was, and like La Mirada, 
and wherever you live is, I'm sure. So let's pray as we go to the word. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. We need to hear from you. We don't just need opinions of a frail preacher. We need to hear from you. So would you help us to hear directly from your word as the spirit who inspired it works in our hearts. Lord, for those among us who don't know you, who haven't prepared room for you in their hearts, I pray this would be the morning they do. I pray that those of us who have seen you take up residence at the core of our lives, that we would clear out even more of the clutter that keeps you from being central to everything. So help us now, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this, this morning's passage, uh, message is about the temple, sort of a foreign concept to many of us, but the temple is a, a vital reality for God's people. So it's about the temple, sort of a foreign concept to us, but probably not as foreign as you may think. Temples are a massively important reality throughout human history and in all world religions. That it's so interesting that even without the revelation we have of God prescribing a temple with very specific descriptions, human beings have had this instinct to create specific set-apart places to meet with God, to commune with God, to worship God, to offer sacrifices to God. It seems to be an instinct wired in human beings throughout human history. Religions have always had the sense of let, we need to, to gather as people to approach God. You don't just saunter into his presence. You set places apart. And so as you look through human history, look through archaeology, you're going to unearth temples. I often think that when someone excavates our society someday as they probably will, like every other society has, if Jesus doesn't come back first. They'll, they'll dig through the rubble and find these incredible temples, like the L.A. Coliseum, right? Like Dodger Stadium, right? Oh, those are the temples of our culture, I think, probably more than any other kind of temple. And if you don't think they're gathering places for worship you've probably never actually been and paid attention so so I, what what is this instinct we have to gather and approach god in a serious way realizing it, you don't just just do that it takes something important well well god agrees with us you know in the garden of eden when human beings were made he creates us and and we're in this beautiful fellowship with him and there's no need for a temple it's as if creation itself is this temple where we meet with God uninhibited, unencumbered by our own rebellion and our own self-absorption. But no, after we express that sin in the garden and all human beings have followed in that rebellion, we've needed God to provide means through which we can approach him, commune with him, know him, fellowship with him. The Tower of Babel was really an effort at self-human pride engineered approaching God in our own strength. And God would have none of it. That's why Rick and Melanie Floyd and other Bible translators have jobs, right? 
That's what Rick has in his email. Be, uh, employed because of Babel, I think it says. Bible translator. Yeah. And God, God won't have this self-effort. No, God needs to provide the means. And that's exactly what he graciously does. He provides a means to approach him. And first, this portable tabernacle, this worship place, this commune with God place. And then once they got to the promised land and got to the heavenly city, Jerusalem, Zion, God prescribed that they very specifically build a temple where they approach him. And he's wanting to get a few things across in this. One, approaching God is serious. It's not something you do flippantly. Two, we've got an obstacle. We need God to provide a means of approaching him because of the obstacle of our own hearts pushing him away, not preparing room for him, and making our lives about ourselves. He wants us to know that it's serious to approach God. There are obstacles approaching God, and he provides a way over, through, around the obstacle of our sin, and that is sacrifice. Worship is enabled because of sacrifice. We were able to do what we've done this morning because Jesus paid the sacrifice. He cleared the way. He removed the obstacle of our own sin and unrighteousness with his righteousness and perfect sacrificial death. And that's why we can worship and pray and come to the word and learn and grow and be transformed by it and live out these lives he has for us because Jesus did that for us. And so we see God preparing a place, a temple. And this for 400 years went on after Solomon builds this temple after they get in the promised land in Jerusalem. But then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and they sack Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, this glorious temple Solomon had built. And the people of God go into exile. Not only is the city destroyed, they're removed from the promised land. But 50 years later, a Persian king, Cyrus, came in. You know, world leaders come and go. It's a good thing to know. <laughs> they do. Uh, but the world leader is not going anywhere. And, and 50 years later, Cyrus comes in. He, he defeats the Babylonians. And he decides he's going to let people go back to their their locality. Go ahead. And he lets them go back. He's ruling over, but, but he lets them go back to the promised land. And so they're back in the promised land. And for 18 years, they're obviously glad to be back, but for 18 years, it appears, as we'll see, they've lived self-consumed lives. And the very purpose of the promised land and the city of Zion, Jerusalem, the place where they find peace and communion with God, the place where the temple existed and was created and was destroyed. It seems when they got into the promised land, they didn't even think barely at all about the temple or the very reason for the promised land or the city of God. Watch. Haggai, chapter 1. Verse 3. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, this house, his temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your Ways. That's the first exhortation of our message this morning. 
Consider your ways. Think about your life seriously, soberly. Take stock. What a good time to do this with a new year coming. Consider your ways. Think about your lives, the way you're living, the way you're investing, where your central priorities and passions lie. Consider your ways. And then he informs them about their ways. You have sown much and harvested little. How's that working out for you, in other words? You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. All this energy, investment, effort doesn't seem to be adding up to anything. How's this self-absorbed life working out for you, he's saying. Not very well, is it? You're not getting much return on your investment, are you? Consider your ways then. Says it again, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about your lives. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified. That's the point of it all. That's the goal of it all. They are not finding satisfaction in all their efforts. They're not finding fruitfulness and joy as God intends for them to. He's not taking pleasure in their lives. He's not being glorified by their lives. They're not fulfilling their main reason for existence. Verse 9, you look for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. He loves them too much to let them set up shop here only. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, God is exhorting us this morning to consider our ways. Think about the way we're living. The people here, and ask God to show you if this applies to you this morning, were indifferent to God. They weren't an act of rebellion. It doesn't seem they'd been building golden calves and falling into licentious immorality. And, but they just had an indifference. They were busying themselves, not with apparently pagan practice or gross immorality, but just indifference. And they probably looked quite responsible as they cared for their own homes and their own little lives and mowed their little lawns. <laughs> and cared for the little 401ks, and made sure there was a good nest egg in the college fund, and, and provided a nice environment for themselves, and got the best possible internet deal they could, and, and made their lives really neat and tidy, and settled back in the land, and, and made sure that the schooling situation for their kids was getting together, and their diets had the nutrition they needed, and that they did all the things they required of themselves. But in the midst of all of that, there was an indifference to God, an indifference to his glory. So he tells them to consider their ways. Their self-absorbed lives didn't 
lead to anything but frustration and disappointment and an emptiness. You think of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I tried women, I tried power, I tried possessions, and none of it added up to anything. And he's wanting them to see that life lived just under the sun is no way to live. Indifference to growth spiritually and prosperity of God's work in the world. His mission in the world. The failure to find Him as the most joyous, pleasurable, uh, glorious thing you've ever pondered in your life calls us to something so radically different than a, a banal version of cultural Christianity that we so easily get sucked into in this culture. Let's see the difference between the life God calls us to that actually isn't radical from his perspective. Oh, it will look so to your neighbors maybe or your family members when you get after this sort of living. And by the way, if no one's ever rolled their eyes at you as a Christian, if no one who's not a Christian has ever, even who is a Christian, who has never, if nobody's ever looked at you and rolled their eyes and say, man, you got to chill out. You're a bit overboard, don't you think? If no one's ever done that to you, I think something's wrong. I do. Don't, don't try to avoid that at all costs. Be uh, concerned if no one's ever talking like that to you. Because we live in a culture, and even sometimes a church culture in our society, where, where to be just a normal Christian looks crazy. You're investing in things that don't have immediate return. They don't just continue to build this little comfortable life. What are you doing? You know, we went to Del Wyrick's 80th birthday party yesterday. It was glorious. Glorious. I, I was so moved the whole time we reflected on Dell's life. Wyrick's here. Where are you, Dell? Oh, look, you took up the whole row. Good job, guys. Yes. We got went to Dell and Jerry's. You know, when Dell retired, when Dell retired, how old are you when you retired? 70? 70. They went to the mission field. What? What? That's crazy. From a worldly perspective, right? They went and worked on one of the mercy ships and, and worked hard. I have a picture on my computer of, of Jerry peeling potatoes. And, and they'll worry, what sort of craziness is this? That you retire and instead of immediately thinking of golf courses and Winnebago's, you think of the mission field. What, what in the world would drive that sort of mentality? No, there's nothing wrong with golf courses in Winnebago. We're not saying anything's wrong with those things in themselves, but, but, but we've got to have priorities that are so different than the world. Listen to Jim Elliott, one of my heroes. I read his life story in journals when I was 18, and it gripped my heart, and I'd never been the same. After he graduated from college and was preparing to go to the mission field, he moved back to Portland and was painting houses with uh, his uncle, and and just getting involved in suburban Portland life. And he got really frustrated with how, how horizontal everyone's perspective was. How this worldly, even Christians, perspective was on life. And he says this in his journal. Generally, I feel quite u- useless here in Portland. Um, unless they're helped by my being here. 
But total ignorance of the truth is the general status of churchgoers hereabouts. I know that my time is limited, and unless someone else moves here to help them, there's little chance of their going on. This church that, this, that's getting established that he's a part of. Oh, that God would shake up some of those married couples around Portland with their prim unconcern for souls and saints dabbling with building lots, houses, jobs, babies, silverware, while souls starve for what they know. What we need here is a family. Listen to the radical solution. To move in, take work, open the home, and teach truth. <laughs> Sounds like a grace group. Sounds like the home of the Wyricks that was described at Dell's party yesterday. Right? Thousands of people had come through there. Um, it, it, the, the solutions, in what? We've got to live for the glory of God. Yeah, so make your home a place where people are pointed to him. Find communion with him. Where the scriptures are opened, where prayer takes place, where worship happens. We were singing in our grace group one night hymns, which, uh, which uh, was something we've always done in our home. And my next door neighbor, he said, hey, I heard you guys sing the other night. It was a summer night. The windows were open. He said, I heard you guys sing the other night. He said, I stood in my driveway for about a half hour singing along with you. Because I was raised in a Methodist church where we sang a lot of those same hymns. Just as wa worship was wafting out the windows. Wyricks were there. Uh, and Dale, will you sing that song you sang yesterday? Tonight, tonight at Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm just going to give you a heads up. <laughs> Are you going to be here tonight? All right. I want to hear from you. All right. Um, <laughs> you're committed now, Dale. Look at that. <laughs> Not now. Tonight. At the Lord's Supper, if you'll be, if you're not going to be here, I guess you need to be now. Uh, so, um, yeah, I love the solution. Sounds like grace. Listen, he, he goes on, Jim Elliot does. He said, um, we cuddle around the Lord's table as if we're the last coal of God's altar and warm our hands. Unthinking about the unmet, unchallenged, untaught generation of heathen now doing their Christmas shopping. We've, we've got to think differently than we typically do. We've got to live for what really matters and what really lasts. We've got to consider our ways. What really consumes us? Look, no one, God especially, is not saying that babies don't matter, right? When he says they're concerned about their babies, just forget about the baby. No, he's not saying that, is he? For, is he saying you don't need to mow your lawn? No, you'll get a citation for the city of La Mirada with Dave Peter's signature on it probably. Yeah, uh, of course you mow your lawn. Of course there's nothing wrong with Pinterest. Unless Pinterest or your fantasy football team or whatever you want to choose. It's really what grips your heart even more than God's glory and the advance of his purposes in this world. And it can so easily happen because we, we are trifling people so easily. We gravitate toward trivialities and distractions. And, and God doesn't fill our hearts and our homes and our lives. Typically, naturally, everything else does. Pick what it is for you. Ask God to show you what it is for you. 
even Christmas details can push God to the periphery. How crazy is that? It's amazing how whacked our priorities can become. Uh, and, and we've got to consider our lives. Think about how we live. Our, our consuming enjoyment of God must be our consuming enjoyment. Worship of him with our whole lives. And then what happens is those other things, all those details of life. Of course, life is filled with driving to work and, and dealing with health problems and, and walking into relational difficulties and making sure the bills are getting paid. There are lots of details, and God creates all these circumstances not to push him to the periphery, but to put him right in the center of all of it. And that's when we have hope and perspective and meaning and joy and lives that last forever. When we get them oriented around the creator, it doesn't mean those things are irrelevant or aren't important. Actually, that's when they take on their real importance. When we put God at the center of it all. When God's infinitely more important to you and you enjoy him more than everything else, that's when everything else becomes a true joy and a conduit of worship of the God who gives it all to us. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the paths of life, and in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He must be central for us. Consider your life. Is that true? Even if you have religious activities, is it true that God's really the core of it all? That knowing him, enjoying him, taking pleasure in him is your driving passion and motive in all your life. This isn't just foreign missions either. It's any vocation, a nurse, a, a school teacher. We have lots of school teachers in this church. I love that we do, having a huge impact in kids' lives. Whether it is a ministry in this church, duking it out with, with toddlers or, or in the nursery or with our youth ministry or working a food bank or wherever it is, but it, it's at your job site too, working construction, working at the physical plant, uh, being an accountant, being a homemaker, being a husband, a mother, a father, a child, a high school student, whatever it is God has you doing, for him to be at the center of it gives everything else the joy and meaning it's intended to have. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. They'll become a, a blessing, a pleasurable part of your life. And so... Consider your ways. And, and then what are we to do? Work, don't be afraid, and be at peace. Chapter 2, verse 1. Work, be at peace. Work, don't fear, and be at peace. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. You ready? In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, just so you know, he gives them this exhortation. They say, all right, let's rebuild the temple. They do. They, they, it says they obey. The Spirit of God stirs up activity, obedience. They get after it, and they're, they're working at it for a month. <laughs> and then apparently it wanes. It, 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 it just over time stops. It falters. The work does. So they need another word. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, a month after they started the work again, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Some are still alive who saw Solomon's temple 70 years before in all its glory. And he says, who, You remember that? 
Is that making you discouraged? Watch. Who saw this? Who saw this house? Who was left among you, verse 3, who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It seems paltry, doesn't it? The work of your hands seems so irrelevant, so unimportant. Yet now, verse 4, be strong. Oh, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Why? 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 It does look pitiful. Why? It, 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 it's nothing. And we've been at it for a month now. And nothing seems to be produced that looks anything like Solomon's temple. We've got so many other things to do. Our lives are very busy. Why? Why should we keep working? Well, here's why. Listen. Same reason we always have. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. I am with you. His presence. That's why we are strong. That's why we work. That's why we're courageous. His presence is with us. He's committed that to us. Watch. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. Don't be fearful. Don't quit. Don't compare your work of your hands at this moment to what was or what you think it should be or what other countries or religions are doing right now that it doesn't seem very impressive. You know, we live in a Facebook culture where our perception of others' lives comes primarily through Facebook. They've done research that people who spend a lot of time on Facebook or use Facebook at all feel considerably less satisfied with their lives than people who don't. Isn't that amazing? This University of Michigan study said it's because of this. While you're on a site like Facebook, you get lots of posts about what people are doing. And it's very seldom dealing with the stomach flu. These photographs are not, you know, unless that's their shtick, that they, they like to do that one. But uh, that... That sets up social comparison. You may feel your life is not as full and rich as those people you see on Facebook or in other ministries or churches down the road or other lifestyles than yours that seem so much more fulfilling. And before you know it, you live a comparison life. And, and you think that following God and his ways, pursuing Christ above all else, isn't quite matching up to what you had hoped and thought and what others seem to be having as well. And he says, no, I am with you. It, when you follow Christ, when you devote your life to him, he's worth it. Even when life is hard, even when there's difficulty in all of it, even when it seems trivial and unimpressive, he says, take courage and work hard. God is with you through the spirit according to his promise he made in the covenant when they came out of Egypt. New Testament puts it this way, how will he not who gave you his son, also graciously give you all things. Why would you ever doubt God's provision? Why would you ever doubt that it's worth it? If God's with you, nothing's trivial. If God's worth, with you, nothing is irrelevant. Nothing is unimportant. It may be unimpressive to your neighbors or the world, but God is in it with you. And the activity you're in is dignified by who's in it with you. 
God's in this with you. God's with you. He's for you, working for your good every day. He's the one who got it going in the first place. Just like in this story, he stirs up the spirit at the end of chapter 1 in these leaders and in the people, and they go about this. He initiates this. He brings the perseverance, and he promises to get you home, looking back on your life of following Jesus, saying, well done, good and faithful servant, and you saying it was all worth it. Every bit of it. He's going to fulfill his promise. And look at the way his promise is ultimately fulfilled. Watch. Fear not, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the work of their hands seemed so paltry. But then Herod comes along. And he builds Herod's temple, the temple that was present in the first century. And it is impressive and glorious. And the sun would shine on that granite and it would bounce off of it and give it the sense of the most glorious place you've ever been. And the people of God must have been tempted to think God was true to his promises. There it is. He did fulfill his promise. Look at the glorious temple. But then a carpenter walks into this glorious temple. This is, this is what it looks like today. It's been destroyed in 70 A.D., but that wall remains, and the Dome of the Rock, a uh, centerpiece of Muslim worship, is now likely where the Holy of Holy was in, in the temple. And, and there it is now. But, but in Jesus' day, they must have said, look at Herod's temple. God was true to his promise. But then a carpenter shows up, and if you go to John... Chapter 2, we see this carpenter say something astounding. Verse 13 of John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The point of the temple was meeting with God, worshiping God, offering sacrifices so that's possible, communing with God. And here in the court of the Gentiles, they couldn't do any of that because of the clamor of commerce. This is not a denunciation of commerce. This is a denunciation of invading God's meeting place with all of these distractions so that people couldn't meet with God anymore. And Jesus would have none of it. I mean, he drives them out and he cleanses the temple. But watch what he says next. It's even more astounding than the cleansing. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? 
The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build a temple and you'll raise it up in three days? And here's the interpretation that they didn't get, but we do. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the fulfillment of this temple promise. The tabernacle, the temple, all these places of meeting with God, they were all just preparing us for the place we meet with God, and that is in God himself, in the Son who comes to us as one of us in a way where we can see him without being killed in the process. We can behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. He is the meeting place of God. He is the one with whom we commune with God. And when we turn from our self-absorbed lives to him, and when he becomes our lives, Christ, who is your life, shall appear. And if he's appeared to you, as the Bible teaches him to be, as God's people for millennia have experienced him to be, he's the place you meet with God. He's the one who brings God to us. And the temple was just a foreshadowing. And so Jesus says this temple will be destroyed. And it literally was, but his point was he will be destroyed. He will be killed. He will be sacrificed. And in his resurrection is a glorious celebration of the sufficiency of that sacrifice. And so now because of him, we can meet with God in him. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple. But that's not the end of the story. It's just astounding where it goes from here. When you turn from yourself and turn to Jesus and trust him for salvation and forgiveness and righteousness and life itself, he does a work in you that the Bible says turns you into the temple of God, especially us into the temple of God. The Holy Spirit now indwells those who've trusted Jesus. They're new creatures in Christ, and you become the dwelling place of God now. We, when we gather in a heightened way, become the dwelling place of God, the temple. That's what Paul says to us. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You know, when you walk in here, you know, rushing because the kids were just unable to get out the door this morning and we're all frantic running around here and, and we're all getting older and, and got all these issues we're dealing with all the time and we can look like such a motley crew, so frail, so insignificant. You compare even to churches in our area that are just happening places and, and you're tempted to think, ah, this is nothing. It's just unimpressive. I, I, I can battle that all the time in my life. I, and I'm sure many of you can too. But here's the beauty of this. When the, the temple came, God the Son in human flesh, many found him very unimpressive. <laughs> One of the most significant places of my life, I only spent under an hour 
And it was on the south steps of the Temple Mount, right here. I sat right about five steps up and wept for about a half an hour when I got there because for the first time on our trip after a month of being in Israel, our tour guide said this to us, now for sure you're definitely walking where Jesus walked. And I will never forget the two reasons he gave. One, we're definitely down to the first century in excavation here. Two, we know for a fact that the south entrance to the temple was the entrance for the common person. So that's where Jesus would have gone in. See, there was a special entrance for Pharisees and priests and important people. But if you were just everybody else, this is where you'd go in. So that's where Jesus went, in the temple. I stood there. And I thought, wait. It's his temple. If anybody gets a special entrance, it's him. Every time he came to this temple, he knew he was the fulfillment of this place. Every, every time he saw a priest going through his special entrance, he knew that he was going to fulfill what that priest was just a foreshadowing of. Every time he saw somebody bringing or buying a lamb into that temple or, or sacrificing it, he knew he was to be the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He created the granite the steps are made of. And I thought, no, he can't go in with the rest of us. He can't go in with the riffraff. He's got to have the most special entrance of all. And I thought, no, that's how he does it. Mild he lay his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. That's how he does it. And that's how he continues to do it through us. Unimpressive by the world's standards. Foolish things of the world adding up to nothing of lasting value. But we're God's temple. Do you take it really seriously when you gather with God's people? Now, this isn't the temple. We are. But we gather here. And when you come to gather with God's people, oh, you take the presence of God everywhere you go as an individual. But this is heightened when God's people gather. Do you take it really seriously? Sinclair Ferguson talks about going to preach at this little church in the highlands of Scotland, and he arrived an hour early, and there were people out in the, the uh, graveyard outside the church on their knees lifting their hands saying, Lord, meet us this morning. Show us something from your word through this preacher that's coming. That's a very different approach than many of us take to coming to church. Hit or miss, a bit lackadaisical. 20 minutes late because Starbucks is a must. It's just amazing how, how differently we can think about meeting with God's people. It's a sacred thing. The people of God in whom the Spirit of God dwells gather here. We need to be sober and delighted and serious about this as we gather as God's people. It's a glorious thing we're doing. And then, that's not the end of the story. Did you see how it ends in verse 9? We become the means by which the nations then gather to God. That we, the people of God, the temple of God, the gathering place of God become the means through which the nations, God's going to shake the earth, he says. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, the passage is quoted, the shaking passage. God's going to shake the nations, and that shaking is going to have an effect on God's people where they're shaken out of their lethargy, and they're drawn to God and to his people. And his people are the primary means by which he accomplishes that shaking. I think it'll have a literal, physical reality, but it'll primarily be the people of God living in ways not consumed with just the wood, hay, and stubble of this world, but living for what lasts forever, living for what really matters and what brings greatest joy to our lives, and that's God himself for us in Christ. That day is coming, and do you know what other day is coming? When Jesus comes back and he restores everything, where as we sing, make it on earth as it is in heaven, that day is coming, and we won't return to the garden It'll be infinitely better than it was there. But there will be one thing very similar. No temple. No temple in the garden. No temple in heaven. Do you know what it says in Revelation describing what it's all going to look like? John says this. When the new Jerusalem descends, John says, I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. He is everything to us. That's heavenly reality. Why would you want to go to heaven with that being the central reality if that's not how you're living now? With God's presence as your greatest consuming joy, with the presence of the Lamb, who died for our sins. Oh, let's get a head start. In living in a way where we realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple, and then that fulfillment extends through our lives as he reaches the nations through our lives. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We can become consumed with everything else but you. Would you help us each and as a church, to consider our ways, to be led by the Spirit in this, convicted by Him, enlightened by Him. Help us, Lord, to consider our ways, set our hands to the work with courage, with hope. And Lord, we're grateful that we can have peace, as this passage concludes in verse 9. We can have peace with you. Lord, we know the angel said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. But then he goes on to say, and on whom God's favor rests. Lord, we're thankful that your favor rests on us in Christ. So help us to rest in him and put our hands to the work with courage and hope and joy and confidence. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.